Well, good morning. Happy apple blossom. Or maybe we should say happy high pollen count. Although by the looks of things, we're going to get that cleared out. Glad you could be with us uh, this morning. Hey, I want to say thank you to, um, we we hosted the prayer brunch again uh, Friday here with Ruth Ruth Graham, and it was really a a very, very, I think, God-honoring event. But 70, 80 of FBCers volunteered to to come early and, and during the week and all that stuff to, to make that a possibility and reality. So thank you. If you were one of those volunteers, thank you very much. Um, now, for the next two years, the Winchester Church of God can do it. Woohoo! <laughs> but um, thank you very much. I, I'm typically not someone who jumps ahead in a book I'm reading to read the last chapter, you know, to kind of figure out how it ends especially if I'm reading fiction. I like, to, I like to follow the twists and turns of the storyline and, and then be surprised at the end of how the, how the book ends. But that's not necessarily true when it comes to nonfiction. When we're dealing with, you know, real, a real story, real life events of real people, I like to know how it ends because as I'm reading through the sad parts and the not-so-happy parts of the book. I, it's just nice to know, okay, it, it, there's a happy ending, so then I can read through it and not worry about it. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, right? And Isaiah chapter 9, as well as chapter 11, early on in the book like that, it is a, a picture of the happy ending. Isaiah takes us to the ending of how God is going to wrap all things out in his marvelous plan for the ages, how it all ends. It's the happy ending. And we get to see that a little bit today in this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, let's not forget, as Isaiah is writing this, these were not happy days. People reading the newspapers of that time knew that uh, the Assyrian hordes were breathing down their neck As we saw last week, already in Judah, 120,000 Judeans had been slaughtered. 200,000 had been taken captive. This was a world that had gone mad. It was a world in chaos. These were dark, distressing days in which Isaiah is living and writing. And the sad thing was that the people of God, the Jewish people, were not turning to God in this hour of darkness in this time of distress. They were not turning to him. They had abandoned him. And if we went back to chapter 1, in the opening verses, you get a sense of that. Listen, it says. Let me get to it. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they've revolted against me. They are like an ox though it knows its master, and a donkey that knows, its, um, knows where the manger is, Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they've abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. In the opening verses of Isaiah's 66-chaptered book, we are brought face to face with the fact that the children of God are abandoning God. He says 
in chapter 2, verse 5. So come, house of Jacob, and let's walk in the light of the Lord. This is the call. Isaiah over and over, come on, people, walk in the light of the Lord. He said in verse 22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? Ahaz, why are you following and making an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria? Why are you trying to figure out the problems of life with your own wisdom and your own counsel? Why are you turning to foreign alliances? Why are you turning to foreign gods? Come on, Isaiah saying. Let's walk in the light. He said in chapter 5, verse 20, that these are people who are calling evil good and good evil. They're substituting darkness for light and light for darkness. In verse 30 of chapter 5, he said, if one looks to the land, behold, it's just darkness and distress. Even the light is darkness by its cloud. And you come to chapter 8, the passage we looked at last week, just this sin and this refusal to trust God over and over and over again. And Isaiah said, it is people who have abandoned God who have no dawn. When you're not trusting God, there is no tomorrow. They just have no dawn. These were the days in which Isaiah is living and writing in. So obviously one of the major themes throughout the book of Isaiah, but certainly in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, is this idea of the trustworthiness of God. Isaiah is trying to infuse into the hearts and minds of the people, look, why would you not trust him? He's trustworthy. Trust him. And as we saw last week, as far as Isaiah and his family is concerned, as far as a, a small remnant of people, he said, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Isaiah as the prophet of God, trying to call the people to walk in the light, get out of the darkness, but you got to do it by trusting God. Don't take matters into your own hands. Well, in the passage this morning, Isaiah gives this prophetic message that should provide any thinking person with a really good reason why you should trust God. Because he, he takes us to the final chapter of the book. He tells us how the story's going to end, how God is going to be victorious and reign supreme, how he's going to bring in peace and joy. That's the ending. So trust him now. That's the message of Isaiah. Now, chapter 9 begins with this contrast compared to how chapter 8 ended. Chapter 8 ended with words like distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. They will be driven away into darkness. But then you've got this big contrast with the first word in chapter 9, verse 1. But, or nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea and the other side of Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles and the people who walk in darkness. There's a day coming when they will see a great light. Something's going to change. Something radical is going to happen. And he picks out these two 
these two tribes of Israel. You know, Israel was made up of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the two tribes he mentions here, Zebulun and Naphtali, were in the northern part of, of what was Israel. That little purple spot in the middle is Zebulun, and, and Naphtali is, is to the north. These were the areas that would have been first um, um, pillaged by the Assyrians as they came in to attack. This is the region of Galilee. This is where the town of Nazareth was found, or Cana, or Capernaum. This is the region of Galilee. And Isaiah is saying, something is going to happen one day, and this, is going to, this area is going to be filled with joy. It's going to be glorious. A light is going to shine in this area. Radical change is coming. Verse 3 says, it will be marked by abundant joy. You shall multiply the nations, speaking of God, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as, as men who rejoice when they divide the spoil. Think of the most uh, glorious times of rejoicing as a nation. When the harvest was bountiful and the people came together and thanked God in, in, with, with great rejoicing of heart. Or think of the time when the, the victories were won and the army comes back to divide the spoil. Great times of joy. Days are coming. Days are coming when joy is going to be there. And then he gives four reasons why that joy is going to be there. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6 all begin with the word for or because. They're causal phrases. Joy is coming because, verse 4, God will break the yoke of their burden. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. There's two uh, figures that, that would pop into the mind of a Jewish person hearing these words. Two historical times, the breaking of the rod of oppression. It would be the idea of Moses delivering the people out of the land of Egypt. The, the yoke of oppression was, was lifted. And then this reference to the Battle of Midian. Every Jewish person would know what that's all about. It's the, um, the time when Gideon had thousands of men, his army at his disposal to go fight the Midians. And God, remember the story in Judges 8, God says, no, that's too many. Will it down. They will it down to how many? 300 soldiers who basically did nothing, and God wiped out the Midianites, their enemies. Great victory. Why should they be rejoicing? Why is the day coming when they will be full of gladness and joy? Because freedom, freedom from oppression like never known before will take place. That's what verse 4 is talking about. Verse 5, here's another reason to rejoice. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult, the cloak rolled in blood is going to be for burning uh, for fuel for the fire. Every implement of warfare will be turned into another use because there will be no more war. There will be peace. Peace like the world has never known. Why is there going to be rejoicing? Why is there going to be an outbreak of joy and gladness? Why, why will darkness be dispelled by light? Why will this be a glorious day in Zebulun and Naphtali in the region of Galilee? Because peace is going to come. Freedom is going to come. And then in verse 6, the third causal phrase, for 
a child will be born. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. A child king is coming. Now, that's the ultimate reason to rejoice. The ultimate reason for why light will be dispelling the darkness one day, while victory will reign supreme over defeat and distress, why joy and peace will come to the world, is because a child is going to be born to us, and a son is going to come whose government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And now we have a fuller picture of what Isaiah had talked about back in chapter 7, verse 14. When God came to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and he said, I realize these are dark times. These are, these are times of dread. So Ahaz, king, ask for a sign. Make it as high as heaven, as, as deep as shield, and I'll give it to you. I want you to know you can trust me. Trust me. If you believe in me, he said in verse 7, you will stand. If you don't believe in me, you will not stand. And Ahaz refused. He turned his back on God. And God said, okay, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. I'll give you a sign. Well, now we have that more fully unpacked, this idea of this Emmanuel, this virgin-birthed son who was promised in chapter 7 is now more fully depicted as the child king. He's a child who's born to us. The emphasis is on his humanity. This is a human king. He's a child who is born, but he's also the son who's going to be given to you. And that's the emphasis on the divine king. He's human. He's a child born. He's divine. He's the son who is given to us. And he's identified then with these four titles. He is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. Four titles made up of two words each. Notice that? Two, two words each. One of those words in the pair will emphasize humanity. The other will emphasize his deity. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. And the Hebrew word for wonderful is a word emphasizing deity. It's used of, of God, of his ways. It reflects a supernatural, extraordinary, awesome wonderment. And counselor would emphasize his humanity. He's the wonderful counselor, the one who will have the wisest of plans, who, who will direct and lead and guide with his insights that are unsurpassed. He's the wonderful 
counselor. He's the mighty God. The Hebrew was, was El Gabor, and the word Gabor is a word that means a warrior, a champion, a hero. It's like a, a general that comes back from the a great battle, and he's the Gabor, he's the champion, he's the mighty warrior, but that's the human part, but this is the mighty God. He is God, the mighty warrior. He's the eternal father. Father is the human focus. He's the daddy. He's the one who provides for the family. He's the one who protects. He ever watches over. He ever defends. He's the compassionate one. He's the daddy who watches over. But he is the eternal, the everlasting. That's his deity, the eternal father. Isaiah said he's also called the prince. That's the human part. He's the prince of peace. He's the one who's going to bring world peace, shalom, rest and wholeness to this world. He's going to put it all back together. The world will come back together again like it was designed originally. That's peace, wholeness. And he's going to be the prince of peace. It will be because of him, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 4. One through four. It is going to be because of him that nations are going to come and they're going to take their war implements. Their swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. Their spears are going to be beaten into pruning hooks. He's the prince of peace. But Isaiah's not finished. This coming child, this virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us, this wonderful counselor, this, this mighty God, this eternal father. This Prince of Peace is also, according to verse 7, the one in whom there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. And now we learn a little more insight into this, this child who's coming. A little more insight, we now learn that he is the one who is going to be the fulfillment of the promise given to David. God told David, there will always be a little David boy sitting on your throne. The Davidic covenant, the promise to David, it's mentioned in a, pa a passage like Psalm 89, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever. An everlasting king. Uh, in, in the lineage of David, there will always be a David boy on the throne. I mean, I, Isaiah's writing to real people. The, 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 yeah, it's 2,800 years ago, but these are real people with the real threat of, of total destruction, with the Assyrian hordes and the, the, the wickedness and the tactics used by the Assyrians. And they've been battling already the, their neighbors to the north, Israel and, and Syria. They already know death and destruction. These are real people, real lives, real moms and dads and, and little children dying in the land of Judah. And Isaiah is saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let me tell you the final chapter. A child 
is going to be born. A son is going to be given to us. There'll be no end to his government. He will reign with justice and righteousness. He will sit on the throne of David. God will fulfill his promises. And so the question would be, so when <laughs> and who? When is this going to happen? When will the reign take place on David's throne? When will peace come? When will there be gladness and joy and light? And the answer is 700 years later. Seven centuries later. And the angel came to a young virgin engaged to a man named Joseph. And the angel said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. This is right out of Isaiah. You will give birth to a child. A child is going to be given to us. He will be the son of the Most High. A son is given to us. He'll be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He will reign on the throne of his father David, and he will do it forever. Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew writes in chapter 4, now when Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into the, that region of Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, Matthew wrote, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness, they saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And Matthew is saying, he's come. In fulfillment of Isaiah, Matthew writes these words 2,000 years ago, but the very words we're reading, he read. And he said, it's happened. A light has come to Galilee. His name is Jesus. Jesus is that Emmanuel. Jesus is that child who was born to us. Jesus is the son who was given to us. Jesus is that wonderful counselor. And as Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago, as it's recorded in a passage like John 7, they would say, never, never has a man spoken to us like this man. Never had a, has a man had wisdom. Never have we heard such wonderment in wisdom, a wonderful counselor. They said, as it's recorded in Luke chapter 4, they were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them like one having authority. They never heard words like he spoke. When Jesus 
met the woman at the well in Samaria. She goes back to her, what friends she had, her people, her town, and she said, you have got to come and see this man who told me everything about me. Could this be Messiah? He's the wonderful counselor. And Peter said to Jesus, who shall we go to? You only have the words of eternal life. You see, Jesus alone has the right to wear the title Wonderful Counselor. He's the mighty God. The disciples out on the storm-tossed seas of Galilee, salty old seasoned fishermen, and they're fearing for their life. They're doomed men as the waves are bouncing that little craft. They're sinking, and they wake Jesus up. Don't you care? We're perishing. And he stands up, and he says, Peace, be still. And it didn't take 10 minutes for the waves to die down. Mark records for us in an instant. Everything was calm like a sea of glass. And Mark records that the disciples who were shaking in their boots because of the storm now were all the more afraid because they asked the question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He is El Gabor, the mighty God. That's who he is. Mark also records the story, Matthew does too, as Jesus comes to a paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders talk and they, they mock him and they say, who, who is he that he thinks he can forgive sins? And Jesus hears them. He knows their hearts. And he tells them, so that you know the Son of Man has the power, has the authority to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic and he says, pick up your bed and walk. And the man picked up his bed and walked because he was El Gabor. He wears the title and the only one who can wear it, the mighty God. He's the eternal father. As he said, suffer the little children to come unto me. His heart was soft. His heart was for the children and his own children, his followers. He had compassion like no one else. He was the Abba. He loved his own to the very end. But he was the Prince of Peace. And he said, if anyone is weary and heavy-hearted, come unto me, and I'll give you rest. Hours before he's crucified, facing his own imminent death at the hands of Roman crucifixion, he says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, so I give it unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, because he was the prince of shalom, of wholeness of peace. And only Jesus Christ had the right and has the right to those titles. But now wait a minute. Let's be, let's be honest here. Three short years of ministry on this earth ended how? with his people saying, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. 
three short years of ministry on this earth ended up being executed as a common criminal by the government of Rome. In fact, 40 years, less than 40 years later, Roman armies are marching in under the general Titus to Jerusalem, and they slaughter the people in their streets. They sack Jerusalem. They turn the temple upside down, the great temple of Herod, not one stone left upon another. And for all intents and purposes, after that campaign by the Roman army, there's not one Jew left in Palestine. Where's the peace? Where's the joy? Where's the glorious day for Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee? Where's the light? Was Isaiah's wonderful prophetic word about this coming child, was it wrong? Now remember, I mentioned a few weeks ago that prophets in the Old Testament pro prophets, as they spoke their prophetic word, they would speak maybe a line, a, a sentence of a, of a prophecy of something that was going to take place, maybe contemporaneous with them or maybe some years down the road, but then in the very next sentence or very next phrase, they would speak another prophetic word, but it would have something to do hundreds of years later. It was this picture of, of the two mountain peaks. As the prophet spoke, he, he could see the first mountain peak, and then he looked ahead and he saw the next, and then, but he never saw the, the gap, the valley of time in between. It was like one same prophetic message, but we know that that wasn't the case. Jesus Christ indeed was the child born. He was the son given. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, they all knew that. He was the virgin-born Emmanuel promised by God, but the complete fulfillment of Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, that second mountain peak, is yet to come. It even has not happened yet today. Jesus was the seed of David. He was the promised light to dispel the darkness. He's the coming Messiah to bring joy and gladness and peace. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. But not everything was fulfilled in his first coming. For when this child, this Emmanuel, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace, comes a second time, when he comes a second time, then there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You see, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. He, he came into this world having come from that place of honor. And he divested himself. He, he set aside his divine privileges and prerogatives. And he entered this world 2,000 years ago, and he walked among us as a real human being. He was the child who was born for us. And in the Father's plan, it was so that he would eventually 
die for the payment of our sins, that he would be the sacrificial lamb to die, to satisfy the Father's righteous justice and wrath against sin. And he went to the cross, and he paid for our sins in complete totality so that he could offer a free gift to anyone, anyone here today, a free gift of eternal life. The trustworthiness of a God who says, I've paid it all. Now you can receive it by faith. Trust me. Jesus came the first time as the sacrificial lamb. But there's another mountain peak, and he's going to come a second time is the roaring lion of Judah. And he will sit on the throne of his father David, and he will reign with righteousness and justice on this earth. Now, I understand there are godly scholars who believe that Jesus is sitting on the throne of David today in heaven. Here at Fellowship Bible Church, we consistently teach that there is yet a time to come that he's going to sit on the throne of David. For you see, throughout the Old Testament, David's throne was never in heaven. The prophecies refer to David's throne was in Jerusalem, a real place in a real time. And the promises to David was that there would be a David boy and he's going to sit on your throne, and he's going to reign and rule, and there will be peace on this earth, and the nations are going to come, and they're going to bow before that throne and that king, and they will beat their, their implements of war, their weapons of war, into plowshares, into pruning hooks. There will be peace. And the last time I read the newspapers, I don't see that happening in this world right now. But it will. It will. Mountain peak number one has already come. Mountain peak number two is yet to come. And so folks, right now, May 6, 2018, we are in the valley in between the two. And it's marked by darkness and distress oftentimes and anguish. It's marked by unpleasant times, a world gone mad, a world in chaos. And while we live in the valley, we're called to live Isaiah-like. people of faith, to say as Isaiah said, I will trust in the Lord. I will wait eagerly for him because there's no place else to go. There's no one else. There's no one else who's worthy of trust. Isaiah writing to real people in a real time his whole point is to, to come to Ahaz and come to the people of Judah, to come to his, his countrymen and say, why would you want to trust in foreign alliances? 
Why? When you can trust him, the king. Why, why would you want to trust your own wisdom when you've got the wonderful counselor? Why would you want to trust in your own strength? You've got the mighty God. Why would you want to trust in your own attempts to figure out peace? Trust in the Prince of Peace. Isaiah is telling his people, there's a day coming. And whether we see it now or maybe it's thousands of years in the future, Isaiah is saying, trust him. Walk in faith before him because there is no one better than our great God who's come as a child, who's the son that is given to us. The good news is for us today that if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've come to that point where you've put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, and you've become a new creation in Christ, the good news is that very King of Kings resides within you. You are a, a child of the living God. And we can personalize this passage. We can put our name in here. I can say for a child has been born for Mark Carey, and a son was given to Mark Carey. For me, this is true. Do you struggle where the next bend in the road is going to lead you and we're not sure what the wisest path is to take? James tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask. And the wonderful counselor will give it liberally. Not sure how to solve the dilemma of whatever it is you're facing. Not sure you even have the strength or the power to carry on to the next day. Ephesians chapter 3 reminds us that he does exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to his power that mightily works within us because he's El Gabor. He's my mighty God. And if you know Jesus, he's your mighty God. And if you're going through life and sorrows like sea billows roll, we can follow 1 Peter chapter 5, and Peter says, so cast your care upon him. You cry out to Abba, Father, because he cares for you, because he's the everlasting Father. Your heart in turmoil today, worry and anxiety that grips us, we turn to Philippians 4, and we hear the words, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication of thanksgiving, just let the Prince of Peace share it with him, and his peace will guard your hearts and minds because he is the Prince of Peace. He is for me. And if you know him as your Savior, he is for you. And Isaiah writes 2,800 years ago, but if he were here in this pulpit today, he would say, oh, people of God, what more do you need? What else do you need to trust in? I will wait eagerly for him. 
and I will put my trust in him. The world and all of creation awaits the day when the child king returns and sets up his kingdom of justice and righteousness on this earth. Romans 8 tells us all of creation is groaning for that day to come. But as a child of God, I've got it now because he is my wonderful counselor. He is my mighty God. He is, and he can be yours too, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. So let's leave here today filled with joy and gladness because the light has dawned in our hearts because of Jesus, the child given to us, the son, God's son for us. Let's pray. Father, how often we need to be reminded as the people 2,800 years ago needed to be. It's daily, sometimes almost hour by hour, Father, we need to be reminded of who you are, of the trustworthiness of your person, of your character, of your grand plan for the ages. Thank you for for turning us ahead to the final chapter. May our hearts be encouraged that as we see the, the glorious ending, we know that even now, today, we've got a Savior. We've got a King and a Lord. Thank you for allowing us a relationship with you. May we ever learn to trust you more. In Christ's name I pray, amen.